Well, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I hosted our small group at our home. It's five couples, including ourselves, and after sharing dinner together, we, as we sometimes will do, played a little game just for some fun and some, for, for some laughter. And this time we played a version of the newlywed game uh, that we called the uh, not-so-newlywed game since we've all been married for 25 years or more. Uh, but all the husbands left the room and the wives were given, given a series of questions to answer. Uh, questions like, uh, what is the anniversary of your first date? Um, it would be December 14th, 1982. I knew that one. <laughs> what, is the color, what was the color of, your bri- of the bridesmaids' dresses in your wedding? Now, if you're married and your wife is sitting next to you guys, I want you to lean over to her and tell her what the color was of the bridesmaids' dresses at your wedding. I'll wait. Anyone? <laughs> Ours were mauve. So we had several questions like that. Then the husbands come back into the room and have to answer the same questions, and we'll see how, you see how many of them match. And if you match the answers, you get points for that. And so we had a little competition. One of the questions was, if you were marooned on a deserted island, what one food would you want to eat for the rest of your life? So in my time came, I said, um, spaghetti. Because I once, back in my single days, once went uh, a whole year and ate spaghetti every night for dinner for that whole year. That's really a true story. I like spaghetti. What can I say? I like spaghetti. But after I answered, my wife gave her answer, and she thought I would say peanut butter. Because I eat peanut butter every day of my life, at least sometime or another, and I've often said peanut butter is nature's most perfect food. Do I have any, can you get an amen from anybody out there? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Drew. Uh, but she said peanut butter, and I thought, like, peanut butter? Of course I would do peanut butter. I was thinking meal, and she was thinking a certain particular food. So we got zero points for that question, but we still went on to tie for first place in that little competition. We're in a series now from the Gospel of Mark called Following the King, and today we're talking about a meal. We've been singing about it, we're going to talk about it, a meal that Jesus shared with his closest followers, a meal that we still remember today. Let me set the scene before we jump into our text today. We are in the last days of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the story we look at today most likely takes place on the last full day of Jesus' earthly life. Jesus has spoken multiple times about his coming arrest and his eventual death, uh, although the disciples have not fully understood what he's been talking about. Uh, He has intentionally entered Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry in a way that fulfilled the ancient prophecy of the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus has intentionally cleanse the temple, that is turning over the tables and throwing the money changers out, angering many, many powerful people. Jesus has embarrassed his enemies in public debates as they try to trap him with his words. Tensions in Jerusalem are rising. And on top of all of that, it's the time for Passover, one of the holiest times of the Jewish year. And thousands of pilgrims have made their way into the Jerusalem for this great traditional celebration. Now, to set the stage a little further, let's, let's look at Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read uh, from verses 12 to 16, which is really just an introduction to what we're going to look at today. Mark writes, And on the first day of unleavened bread, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover were kind of connected in Jewish tradition, 
When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now this would have stood out as unusual because usually women carried the water in that culture. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. So we know the story uh, that we're going to talk about today. Uh, but, and we kind of skim over this preliminary part. Uh, but there's something really interesting here I want us to see. So if you imagine it's Thanksgiving time um, in your family, and you ask a family member, hey, where, where do you want to celebrate Thanksgiving this year? And that person says, well, go into Chicago, and you're going to see a guy delivering water bottles to a, a, a big office building. Follow him inside, he'll, and he's going to take you to the to the person who owns that building, and they're going to show you a big banquet hall already set up for Thanksgiving dinner. You'd be like, what? How does that work? Right? But this is what Jesus does. Now, there are several ways to look at this. Either Jesus is sort of demonstrating the supernatural foreknowledge of what's going to happen, or perhaps he made these arrangements ahead of time because he wanted the time and the place to remain secret as long as possible because he knew betrayal was coming and he wanted to make sure it did not happen before he was able to share the Passover meal for his purposes. Either way, what we need to see is that Jesus knows what's coming. He's controlling the narrative of this last day of his earthly life. I was listening to a South African preacher uh, this past week named Chris Winand who said an interesting phrase in considering this part of the story. He said, Jesus always takes us to where he's already been. I love that line. Jesus takes us to where he has already been. So, now let's read our text for today. Mark 14, beginning in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table, that's the way the ancient Hebrews ate. They sort of laid and sat on cushions. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better, would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So the first part of the story I'm calling the king's betrayer. The king's betrayer. Uh, many of you know, uh, and I've mentioned this over the years, that back in the day I played a little college basketball. Look at that guy. Still had all his original parts, all his joints. <laughs> I remember that guy. But one of the things we hated most um, as players was running conditioning sprints at the end of practice. Some of you may remember, if you played high school sports or college sports, conditioning drills at the end of practice. The worst sprints uh, we called suicides. Now, that's not very politically correct today, and you probably, they probably call them something different today, but that's what we called them in that time. Uh, how many of you remember that? Any of you guys remember running those things? Well, we lined up at the end of the court. When the coach blew his whistle, we ran to the free throw line. 
and then back to the baseline, making sure to touch the line each time, then the half court and back, then the three-quarter court and back, and full court and back, making sure to touch each line as we ran. It turned out to be, uh, in total, five court lengths, but it was, the, it was the stopping and turning that really got you. Stopping and turning, stopping and turning, stopping and turning. And so inevitably, what would happen is um, you would run these sprints, and because you're already tired and you just wanted to get it over with, you'd stop just a few inches short of the line if you could get away with it, and maybe a foot short of the line, because you, you're figuring that over, over the course of the whole sprint, you might be able to shave off 10 or 15 feet, which every step counts, right? But then the coaches would, would, would see what was going on. They would notice, so they would station the assistant coaches at each line, making sure that everybody touched that line before turning around. And if you missed the line, they'd blow the whistle and put everybody back at the beginning again. And that was the most feared discipline of all because you became responsible for the whole team having to run it all over again. And inevitably, we would run these sprints, and sooner or later, this coach would blow his whistle, back on the line. And when that happened, we would all look down. Nobody would make eye contact because we didn't know who was the one. And we all knew it could have been us because we all thought about it. And we all knew we had missed lines before. we just get back on the line and run again. None of us wanted to be that guy who made everybody run. Now, two things are happening here in this part of the story, both of them surprising. First, Jesus says, one of you who are eating with me will betray me. This is surprising and shocking, really, because these men had been together for over three years now. Jesus had chosen each one of them by name to follow him. And in those days, in that culture, to follow a rabbi was a great honor. And they had all left behind their lives to follow him. They had traveled together, walking mile after mile as Jesus crisscrossed the region back and forth. By some estimates, they had walked over 3,000 miles together with him in over three years. They had traveled together. They had eaten together. They'd gone hungry together. They slept on the cold ground together. They'd watched Jesus heal the sick, touch the lepers, feed hungry crowds, calm the storm. They had seen him teach. They had seen as he wa- and watched as he answered those trying to trap him with complicated theological questions. They'd seen all this. And they'd seen just a few days earlier the crowds waving palm branches and singing his praises, throwing their coats in the road. Hosanna! Believing their king, their Messiah, was coming into Jerusalem. And yet still, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. The word betray in the original language means to give up or hand over. So what they would have understood him to be saying is, one of you will hand me over, will give me up to those, my enemies, who want to destroy me. Now, we know he was talking about the disciple named Judas. Earlier in Mark 14, verses 10 and 11, we read, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Matthew tells us that the price Judas negotiated was 30 pieces of silver. Ironically, that was the going rate, the price, to replace a slave who had died an accidental death. So why did Judas do it? What was his motivation? The Apostle John says it was simple greed. In his version of the story you looked at, we looked at last week, the woman who poured the expensive perfume on Jesus, he writes this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, 
parentheses, he, uh, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And then he says again, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So John says it was just greed. He just wanted money. Others have guessed maybe it was some sort of twisted ambition. Perhaps Judas uh, became frustrated with what he perceived to be uh, the, the slowness of the plan, that he wanted Jesus to be more bold in declaring himself king, a political king like David, and believed if he could just arrange to get Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, he would be forced to show himself and to show his power. <coughs> Either way, Jesus says it would be better for that man not to have been born. Now, here we see something interesting. Even though the death and resurrection of Jesus was God's sovereign plan for salvation history, Judas was still entirely responsible for his actions. This is the mystery of God's sovereignty and human free will coming together in this story. But then we see a second surprising thing that happens. Mark tells us that the disciples, as Jesus said, one of you will betray, became sorrowful. They were, in other words, they were grieved. They were greatly distressed. And then each of them, one by one, asks a haunting question. Is it I? Different translations say, render this phrase as, surely not me, or am I the one? We know that Jesus here is talking about Judas, but they didn't know that at the time. And it occurs to me that the only reason any of them would say, is it, is it me, is if they had maybe thought about it or if they knew it was possible. Like me wondering if it was me who missed the line during the sprint. Because I knew I had missed them in the past and I knew I thought about it every time we ran one of those sprints. Now we don't know, but maybe some of them also were offered money by Jesus' enemies to turn him over. We don't know. Maybe some of them were promised jobs if they just shared his itinerary. Just tell us where he's going to be. You don't have to do anything. Just tell us where he's going to be. Or maybe they were threatened. Or maybe members of their family were threatened. We don't know. But one by one, they say, is it I? And the answer is, as we're going to find out, yes, it is. They would all betray in some way Judas by greed or ambition and others by cowardice or fear. We'll come back to this question in just a few minutes. The second part of the story, as I see it, I'm calling it the king's table. There's the king's betrayer and then the king's table. Uh, my first year out of uh, college, I lived in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, playing and coaching basketball for a club team there. And at one point, a friend and I that I'd met in a, in a local church I went to uh, took a two-week backpacking trip all the way to Greece. We wanted to get to Athens uh, we had very little money, so we backpacked. We took trains and ferry boats, hitchhiked uh, all the way to Athens. Uh, we didn't have much money, so we traveled as cheaply as possible, camped out along the way, hitchhiked and so forth. And at one point, uh, after traveling all night on a train, we were really, really hungry, but we didn't want to spend money by going to a restaurant, so we just stopped at a street vendor and bought a big round loaf of crusty bread, it looked a lot like that, and a big chunk of cheese. That was it. 
Um, and we sat down on the side of the road, tore the bread apart with our hands, and ate the entire loaf and all the cheese. And we together agreed that day that that was the best meal we had ever had because we were so hungry. And to this day, when I eat a piece of crusty bread like that, I remember that meal on the side of the road outside of Athens, Greece. Verse 22, Mark says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now we all recognize this as the Lord's Supper, the beginning of what we today call communion. But this time, at this moment in time, on that night, it was a new thing. And more than just being a new thing, it had to be surprising and even confusing to the men who shared the meal with Jesus. The Passover stood at the very center of what it meant to be Jewish, the very center of Jewish identity. It was the great story of God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt, the Exodus. And the whole Passover meal was designed to remember that great story. And if you've been to one of our Holy Week communion services over the years, you know we talk about the elements that were on the table. We'll do that again uh, this coming Easter time. There were bitter herbs and salt water to remind them of the bitter, bitterness and tears of time in slavery. Uh, there was um, unleavened bread, bread that was made in haste as they prepared for, to make their escape from Egypt. And traditionally, uh, there were four different cups of wine that were uh, used throughout the meal to uh, symbolize the four different promises God had given his people back at the time of the Exodus. There was the first cup, which was called the cup of sanctification. I will take you out of Egypt, God said. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you. Then there was a third cup, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you, God said. And then the last cup, the fourth cup, was the cup of praise or consummation when God said, I will take you to be my people. And then, of course, there was the roast lamb, which was the centerpiece because of the lamb that was slaughtered and the blood placed over the door frames of the Israelite homes so the angel of death would pass over as, as God brought judgment to the Egyptians. Now, these men had observed this meal every year of their lives and knew it by heart. But this night, Jesus changes the script. He changed the meaning of the bread and the cup. Mark says he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Not this is bread, and, bread made in haste as we make our uh, departure from Egypt. Rather, this is my body. Now, in Protestant tradition, uh, this is understood to be a symbolic statement that the bread and cup are symbolic of what Jesus would do. It's not a literal statement. There are some traditions that hold that the bread and the cup uh, wine actually become the body of Christ, a doctrine called transubstantiation. Uh, we don't hold to that doctrine. We believe these are symbolic statements. And in verse 23, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood of the covenant. Now, what did that mean? Up until this moment, these disciples, these Jewish men, would have understood the blood of the covenant to refer to two things. 
would have referred to the sacrificial system when the high priest offered the blood of an animal, a sacrificed animal, to atone for or cover the sins of the people. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 43 when he writes, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. They would have thought about the sacrificial blood of an animal that covers their sins. They would also have thought of the blood of the Passover lamb spread on the doorposts of the ancient Israelite homes as the angel of death passed over. But Jesus now says this is my blood of the covenant. Not the blood of a goat or a lamb. Not the blood of the lamb spread over the houses. My blood of the covenant. The writer of Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, the disciples, I don't believe, could have understood what he meant fully in that moment. But Jesus was replacing the Passover lamb with himself, which is why he needed to do this at Passover time, why he was controlling the narrative so all of this happened at the right time. He's replacing the Passover lamb with himself, with his body, with his blood. And in the future, whenever those disciples, whenever the followers of Jesus would take this meal, would hold this bread and take this cup, they would remember his words from that night. Not the exodus from Egypt, but his death and the resurrection which sets us free from sin and death. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, some scholars think here that this comes between the traditional third cup of wine, the cup of redemption, and the fourth cup, which was the cup of praise or consummation. We don't know for sure, but if this is so, it means that Jesus is saying he will not drink the fourth cup, the cup of consummation, until his eternal kingdom, until he comes again. Now, two things strike me here. We usually, we usually call this the Last Supper. I think Jesus is giving it to us as the first supper. Not the last, but the first. But the second thing, and this is to me more important, Jesus offers his body and his blood after predicting one of them will betray him. I think that's significant. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments. And all that leads us to the third part of the story that I'm calling All the King's Men. All the King's Men, verse 25, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Mark says they sang a hymn and went out. 
The hymn was most likely from what are called the Hallel Psalms, that is, all or part of Psalms 116 through 118. And if we read through those, we find a few significant passages. They may have been singing from Psalm 116, The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called in the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Or Psalm 118, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. If that's what they were singing as they headed toward the Mount of Olives, they were singing about what they did not yet know was going to happen that very night and the next day. They went out to the Mount of Olives, we're told, to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, This is what it looks like today, if you've traveled there. Uh, There was kind of an olive grove at the foot of the Mount of Olives, just a short walk from the upper room, one of Jesus' favorite places to pray. And here, Jesus gives a warning. He says, you will all fall away. Jesus had already said there was a betrayer in their midst, and they all said, surely not me. Is it I? Could it be me? But now Jesus just says bluntly, you will all fall away. Now, I think we have to stop here just for a moment. What I want us to see is the connection between the bread and the cup and this statement, you will all fall away. There are two things I notice. First, knowing that his disciples, knowing that his closest followers, knowing that these men he had poured himself into for three years would fall away, did not keep Jesus from giving his body and blood. In fact, that's why he would give his body and blood. The second thing I notice is that knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and following Jesus did not keep the disciples from falling away. Let me say that again. Knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, following Jesus did not keep the disciples from falling away. And that's why they needed Jesus to offer his body and blood. I think this connection lies right at the heart of what we call the gospel, the good news, because we all fall. Jesus' body and blood are for us. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Let me see verse 29. Peter... Dear Peter blurts out, even though they all fall away, all these other ten losers, even if they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, I can only imagine his tone of voice. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And notice, and they all said the same. Now, this is classic Peter, if you read the New Testament. A loud, proud, impulsive Peter. But I think he was absolutely sincere when he said these things. I don't think it was just braggadocio. I think Peter really believed he was ready to die for the Lord that he loved. I think the rest of them were sincere as well. They loved Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They followed him. They just didn't know what was coming fully. And I think 
we can see ourselves in these men, in these disciples, if we try. Because we too love Jesus. We want to follow him. But when fear or temptation comes our way, sometimes we fall. Just like them. And then we see Jesus gives one more promise. Verse 28. But after I am raised up, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I'm not sure they even heard this in the moment with everything going on, what he just said. But a few days later, and we'll get there in a few weeks, they will remember what he said. After I am raised, I will go before you and meet you in Galilee. Now here's what I see that I don't think I'd seen clearly before in this familiar story. I knew that Jesus had used the Last Supper, which was the First Supper, uh, to infuse Passover with brand new meaning. That he is the lamb that is slaughtered. It is by his blood that we are forgiven. By his blood that we are redeemed. I knew all that. What I had not really considered was that the giving of the bread and cup, his body and his blood, is sandwiched between him predicting one will betray and him saying outright that all will fall away and then him predicting Peter's denials. It's sandwiched right between those things. And now I think that's intentional. And I think that's for us today. Many years ago, now maybe, maybe 25 years or so, when Chapel Street was First Baptist Church of Geneva, this one was with our only campus here at South Street, I remember one particular communion Sunday. And time came at the end, and I was passing out the trays to the communion servers who were lined up right here in the front row. There were eight or ten of them. All have since moved away or are uh, with Jesus in eternity. And as I passed out those trays of bread and cup, it dawned on me in real time, right as I was handing them out to each person and looked at them, that I knew something about each one of them. Something painful. Some brokenness. And we were, we were, we were this close together, and I'm handing these trays, and they're looking at me, and they're taking the tray. And I knew, because they had shared with me some of these painful stories. There had been a divorce, or there had been an affair, or there had been a depression, or a broken family relationship. There had been addiction. These were all very private stories, but I knew about them. We had prayed about them. There had been, there had been uh, repentance, and there had been restoration. And all, each, each situation, it dawned on me as I handed out these trays, this is why this matters so much. This is why the bread and cup are so important. And this is why Jesus gave it to them between the prediction of a betrayal and the prediction that all will fall away. This is why. As you uh, came in, I hope you were given one of these little cards that says, is it, it is I on one side. If you didn't get one, you can pick one up on the way out and just take it with you. But we're handing out these cards because that is the the haunting phrase that stands in the middle of this story. Is it I? 
And as we prepare for communion this morning, uh, I want you to consider this question in two ways. First, is it I, in the sense of, am I the one who betrays? Am I the one who falls away? And the answer, if we're honest, is yes, sometimes. But there's another way to take this question, as I think about it. Jesus was right. They all did fall away. Peter, James, John, all the others. But all of them, all 11, were eventually forgiven and restored and became the great apostles of the church. And we have the New Testament because of them. We are here because of those men. Even though they fell, they were restored completely because they all received the grace and gift that Jesus expressed in bread and cup, his body and blood. All except one. We know from the New Testament that Judas chose to end his own life before he could know what Jesus would do for him. So take the card home with you. Put it in your Bible. Stick it to your refrigerator with a magnet. And answer the question often. Am I the one? Is it I who fails? But answer the second question as well. Is it me? Am I the one who receives the bread and the cup? Who trusts that the one who gave his body and blood for my sin blots it out and remembers it no more? Yes. I pray your answer is yes to that question too. Will you bow with me as we close? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today, especially for what we remember today. And we acknowledge that like your disciples long ago, we love you and we want to follow you, but we all fall away in some way. But we also want to receive today the great gift of bread and cup, your body and blood, that forgives and makes clean again and restores. So meet us by your Spirit once again at this your table. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The New Testament tells us that on the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples with these words, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. After the bread, he also poured the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as followers of Jesus, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him.